0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Marcus Folter. Based in Stuttgart, Marcus is an independent consultant, language engineer, and author who helps organizations uncover, understand, and operationalize the knowledge at the core of their business, building a common foundation between business and IT. You can follow him on Twitter at Marcus Filter, that's V-O-E-L-T-E-R, and check out his website at folter.de. He's also the founder and longtime host of the Omega Tau podcast which covers really interesting topics in science and engineering and I highly recommend it. In addition to the other books he has written, Marcus is the author of the Limpa book How to Understand Almost Anything, a practitioner's guide to domain analysis. In this interview we're going to talk about Marcus's background and career, professional interests, his book and at the end we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a writer and content creator. So thank you very much Marcus for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Cool.
0: Um I always like to ask people uh, on the podcast for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and uh, how you found yourself interested in uh career in the career that you sort of built for yourself. Mm.
1: Well, I grew up in a city called Heidenheim, that is uh, about 70 kilometers east of Stuttgart, um, small city. Um, when I went to school, I went to a, well, keep it short, a kind of technical high school with lots of emphasis on science and computing and stuff. So I started programming there, I think in the sixth grade or something. And basically then I just never stopped. Um, I studied technical physics and not computer science at the time, because at the time I thought I knew everything. So I, there's no point in studying computer science. So let's study something useful, right? Um, it wasn't a great idea in retrospect, but in the end it didn't really matter. I um did a phd in computer science then in 2014 so uh, now i can actually call myself a computer scientist um i, I couldn't based on my my uh, university education the original one so and then um i don't know i i somehow stumbled into this whole modeling code generation domain specific language thing i started in the early 2000s with UML, because at the time that was the only way to create, you know, boxes and lines or kind of abstract descriptions of stuff. And I quickly got fed up with that stuff and moved more towards domain-specific languages. I played a lot or worked a lot with um, Xtext. Also I would say between 2004 and maybe six, seven. And then in around 2008 and nine, I stumbled into uh, MPS, JetBrains metaprogramming system. And since then, I mostly built DSLs using MPS. And my role is a mix of technical consulting around the tool and how to actually implement these things, and kind of, you know, my current book. Um, main analysis, how do you actually figure out what should go into a language? How does something work in order then to abstract it into a
0: language? So that's the that's the short story. You mentioned uh, UML, which is um, universal markup language. Is that what that stands for? Uh, no, Useless Modeling Language. Uh, <laughs> yeah, nice. Unified Modeling Language. Unified Modeling Language. Okay. A uh, former uh, guest of the podcast, Simon Brown, will probably shoot me if he hears this um, for me getting that <laughs> wrong. Uh, but. Um, yeah it's it's interesting so i mean uh, uh, the was your interest always from the start at sort of like a understanding things from the kind of hierarchical abstract kind well no abstract isn't the right kind of word but like no it is yeah uh, it okay. is. i
1: think okay. it is um well so um i started my my first if you will career was uh, enterprise infrastructures enterprise java beans middleware corba that kind of stuff um, did quite a bit of work there. Also wrote uh, books in, the, in that space, and um, then for some reason I, I got more interested in the in the te- in the conceptual stuff, and no more in the in the if you will in the weeds of the implementation technologies. And actually, the funny thing is when I was a bit younger, I remember uh, in the late '90s, in my first kind of real commercial projects, I was making fun about these slightly older people who weren't interested in technology and all the newest frameworks and shit. And I, I prided myself in always knowing the most recent technologies in the Java space mostly. And this has completely changed. I I, I couldn't care less. It's a bit of an exaggeration about the newest XYZ framework. It, it, I'm, I'm I have completely moved over, not into, it's not just, you know, people I Laugh even more about is requirements engineers who have moved so far away from um, programming and and computing that they only talk about high level business stuff. I don't, I'm not that person, but I do enjoy getting deep into the details of particular domains, trying to understand them, systematize them, find abstractions for describing them, and I'm no longer very interested in the latest technology stuff. And don't ask me why.
0: Oh, okay, I well, won't. Um... <laughs> <laughs> <Okay, then. laughs> uh, but but uh, if I'm a clever podcast host, I'll find a way of asking it indirectly or getting to an answer okay, yeah. indirectly. Uh, but anyway, it's it's um it's interesting. So you mentioned that you did you did you finished your PhD in uh, computer science in 2014. Um, what was the subject of your PhD dissertation?
1: Yeah, so it was. I have to explain it a bit more. So I. At the time, I was, um, as a freelancer, mostly working with a company called Itamus. It's a German medium-sized consulting company. And at that company, we were working quite a bit with domain-specific languages in MPS. And we got a research project there called Embedder with a couple of other companies where we implemented the C programming language in MPS because that allowed us to extend C with new language constructs optimized for embedded software development. So we built, we counted at one point, I think it was 37 or something, independent modular extensions of C for various aspects of embedded software. And so we had this research project and I basically did my PhD at the University of Delft as an external PhD student about this thing. So we did the research project in the company and I did a little bit of, you know, academic stuff around it, wrote papers, um, published stuff, and but it was kind of very synergistic with my work at the time, which was this research project. And um, I did the PhD with Elko Fisher. I knew him from conferences. At the time, we were also planning to write a book together. That didn't quite work because he was uh, way too busy. Um, but so we... Got in touch, and at some point, I think it was he who proposed whether I would be interested to, to do a PhD with him. And I said yes, and so that's how that happened.
0: It's always uh, great to start with a relationship. Um, <laughs> yes, those 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 things can go bad for those those who are who know them. Um, uh, yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. Actually, it it leads me to ask a version of a question that comes up on the podcast pretty frequently. Uh, particularly given the many different generations of authors that we've had, uh, and so many of them are sort of, you know, in, in IT and things like that. Yeah. Um, if you were starting out now in 2023 with mm-hmm. the intention of having the career you've had, would you formally study computer science as an undergraduate, let's say starting at 18, or would you choose another path? So i think i would say i would yes
1: and the reason is it was true that at the time i kind of knew everything i needed to know in practice to do actual software development i mean you know more or less proven by the fact that i (laughs) have kind of made it a little bit in this field right so but but what i notice these days is that i actually sometimes do miss some of the foundations like I, I once did a an interview with Google. Um, job interview. And um they were asking about, you know, complexity theory and O of and and you know, performance. And I just have absolutely no clue. I, I remember with a buddy of mine, a colleague at the time, we were spending like literally two days to figure out how to sort something because we didn't know that the kind of sorting we needed is called topological sort, and if we had known that, we could have Googled it, and then after 10 minutes, we would, you know, stack overflow or whatever, and you know, we, we were so clueless that we didn't even know what it was that we didn't know. So in retrospect, I would probably study computer science also because the stuff I did study, I never worked in that field anyway, so
0: yeah. Yeah, that's thanks very much for that answer. That's a, that's a, I think that's a very a very thoughtful and and sort of a from experience answer um, for for why one should study, um, which is what I like. Yes, about, exactly. Um, uh, and um, you know, it's uh... by, by by the way, sorry, interrupt. At the no. time, if I had studied it,
1: and I would have been forced to learn all this fundamental stuff, I would probably have said, "I don't need this. Who needs this theory crap?" You know. So so at the time, I think it would be hard to accept that it's useful but in retrospect it is or it would have been
0: yeah no that's a that's a very good articulation of i think of a paradox at the heart of what what education is right and it's and it's an it's an ancient it's an ancient kind of and sort of unresolvable problem which is um you know that my my clever little saying for it is like being educated gives you a power that must be possessed in order to be perceived um you know and and once you have this sort of Foundation of knowledge of things, you can see where they can be applied, uh, but you yes. you have to have it before you can see the application. Um, martial arts are similar in a certain kind of way, um, and uh, and so when you're a student and you're learning it, you just have to kind of trust your teacher. Um, yeah, uh, and you have to you have to you have to give yourself over. And sometimes you give yourself over to bad teachers. Sometimes exactly, you I was going to, to say that. To, sometimes you give yourself over to bad systems. Uh, and that can be very unfortunate. And so the people I've, I've talked to on the podcast who've given sort of the other answer, which is no, I wouldn't. Some of them did go to university for computer science. Some of them didn't, or, or whatever, whether it's computer science or the thing that they ended up in, sometimes they're like, you know, it, I really wish I'd done it. Um, other times they're like, I did it and it was a total waste of time. And often I, I find when it's the latter, it's probably because they just had, they will not just that they, they unfortunately had a very bad experience. Um, yeah. but. You know, I remember, um, uh, my, my background is in English literature. Um, uh, that's when I studied in university and I remember a debate, um, when I was a graduate student at, at one university where they were talking about getting rid of the language requirements. So there was a requirement that you needed to have two languages in addition, this mm-hmm. I was studying English so everyone knew English, but there was a language requirement that you needed to have two other languages. And, um, I remember being at a faculty meeting, I was a faculty representative where, and a faculty member said, I had to, I had to learn two languages myself. Um, you know, the second one I learned was Latin and I never used it. It was a total waste of time. And I remember thinking, you piece of shit. Like (laughs) the fact that you didn't fucking use your knowledge of Latin in your career as a professor of English literature is not (laughs) anyone else's fault. <laughs> yeah I, I don't know what to say you know and yeah. so that that's a pretty harsh thing but you know basically if you have the if you have the uh, uh the time and you have the money to study in your youth um to spend years devoted to studying your youth i'm I'm personally very much on the side of of, of doing it uh as, yes. as long as long as you as long as you have a good place to go as long as yeah it's not completely against your nature if it is don't fight that t- t- too hard <laughs> yeah. Sure. I, I was
1: at a, at a in Germany, we have these things called Fachhochschule. It's kind of an applied university. And I was at one of those. And they claim to be more practically oriented, right? So if you go to a, quote, normal university, you know that you're going to learn lots of theory stuff you'll never need. And it's, you know, it's fine. You, you know that going in. And this more applied university where they claim that whatever you learn is useful in practice, it is Even more annoying if you then have to learn, for example, programming a robot that is programmed in a programming language that IBM invented 20 years earlier, nobody used, which is why people gave away the robots to the university. So now we can learn a supposedly practically relevant skill, robot programming, with a language that is not used by anybody. And that made it made it sometimes hard for me to, to learn some of this stuff because it was supposed to be practical, but then it wasn't.
0: I could talk about this subject for a very long time. I think, I think we're both, we're both, it sounds like we're both kind of passionate about it. I mean, the, the sort of the really harsh way I have of putting it is like, if you're 18 and your professors are presenting something to you that, and you're just starting out learning something that you don't know, which is why you have professors and why you're at a university. Mm -hmm. And they're presenting things to you that seem practical to you. <laughs> you know, it, they might be selling you something, right? Because like you, you actually mm-hmm. don't, you know what I mean? They're, 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 they're thinking about you as an 18 year old and what's going to appeal to you and seem practical to you and maybe to your parents or something mm-hmm. like that, Yeah. um, you know, and like there, there's, there's, there's a, there's a history of that kind of thing happening, particularly in the American education system mm-hmm. where. When, when kids were basically take, I'm not going to go too far down this rabbit hole. When, when, when public education became a forced thing, kids were, a lot of kids were taken off the farm basically. Mm-hmm. And a lot of parents had the number of kids they had because they needed twice that many hands, uh, yeah. at work on the farm. And so one way, t- when, when all those all those kids were being taught to do useless things like read and do math, right? Their parents were like, well, why aren't you teaching them anything practical? So yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so the education system it's like fine, you know. We'll make shop class, you know, mm-hmm. like you know. And it was it wasn't because they really valued that. Uh-huh. Um, and and um, there's a version of that ca- that can happen. And I, where I grew up in a place called, in a in a place where people ha- were there were basically an agricultural part of Canada where a lot uh-huh. of people um complained that what they were learning in university wasn't practical in their 18 year old terms. <laughs> Uh, and would leave before they got their education because they felt that they were wasting their time. Whereas of course, if they could just stick it through. So that's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this. And it's, it's such an important thing, but once again, not everyone has the opportunity. Not everyone has the inclination. um, If it's totally against your nature, don't go, but, but, but but also like you trust it, it. also, there is just this paradox that you have to trust that at the end of that time, you're mm. going to know things and that that are do have practical application that you just can't know what their application is mm. until you know them. So anyway, that's my long rant. Uh, but going back to you, um uh, so uh, you've been so you i'm I'm curious. have you been have you been sort of like independent as a consultant for your whole career, or did you start almost up- for companies? okay. no, i
1: I started as a as a freelancer while I was studying just to you know make money on the side as everybody did. And I forgot to stop this right. And I was employed for 22 months um, by a small software uh, consulting company, which then more or less went bankrupt as part of the dot-com bust. So I was kind of freelancer before, and then I just went back to that proven practice afterwards. And since then, I've I've done that. And and now I guess I'm unemployable because <laughs> because I I'm completely allergic to anything that smells like company politics, and
0: and. So I, I think it's too late now. So I have to continue this until I die. And I'm or curious, th- th- there are a lot of people for whom they they actually like to have that life <laughs> or they think they would. Uh, but, um, did you, did you have a guide like someone or, or, you know, someone to sort of tell you how to do it or did you just sort of dive in and yeah, find clients? I, I,
1: it was easy for me to find stuff to work on interesting stuff during, um, during university, um. And so I just, it just it was almost like a continuum, but when I finished studying, I just did a bit more of the work thing, you know? And so I just stumbled into it. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I never decided to do that. Right. It just, it just happened.
0: Ooh, that's really interesting. Um, I think, uh, yeah, because most of the people I've interviewed, there was a sort of, you know, there's a conventional story which is you know i mm. sort of went to university or what have you or started designing websites or something like that and then got my first company job and sort of went up the ladder went up the ladder mm-hmm. and then decided at one point you know what i'm allergic <laughs> to company culture or, <laughs> or 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 else the role i want to play in the work that i do doesn't sort of match with being f- formally part of an organization that i that i want to help mm. um i think yeah. is is often what happens mm-hmm. um uh, so that, no, that's that's really interesting. Um, uh, so before we go on to talk about the next part of the interview, to talk about your book, um, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk, and, and so um, there's, a, this is an explicit podcast, so pardon my uh, using a swear word to congratulate that's you. That's fine. Actually, I wanted to ask you if I'm allowed to use like Oh, you know, so you're totally allowed write. to swear, but I, I'm going to use it. Anyone in the car with their kids, I'm going to com- use a swear word to compliment <laughs> Marcus about his podcast. It's a fucking great podcast. Um, uh, I was looking at it and I was just like saving every episode. (laughs) Um, uh, I can't believe I didn't know about it until now. But so for anyone interested, the Omega Tau podcast, it's in German and in English. I wish my German were good enough that I could listen to the German episodes. But I mean, Marcus gets to interview, like it's crazy. It's like um, three hour interviews about, you know, how things work at CERN, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, or um, literally literally like F-35 test pilots. Talking about like flying the planes, um, in detail. I actually that the
1: best thing I was able to do was part of the podcast. I was able to fly in one of these jet fighters. I got to fly in the F sixteen with the Thunderbirds. This was a dream that I had. I'm a huge aviation nerd, right? So since I was like eight, the F sixteen was my favorite airplane. I don't know why. Beautiful. I just fell in love with it. And um, I started the podcast in 2008 with my then girlfriend. And uh, one of the reasons for starting it was that at that time, a U.S. podcaster, I uh, forgot his name now, he got to fly with the Thunderbirds as the media ride and I said, okay, got to start a podcast too. And I want to reach that same goal. And in 2019, it actually worked. So I, I got to fly and that was, that was the total experience of a lifetime. So since then, it's a bit of a problem, you know, motivating myself for the podcast because I would, won't ever be able to top that, right? So,
0: um, anyway,
1: that's, yeah, no, that's the That's
0: sorry. great. That, that's a, that's a great sort of, um, it's interesting. It took you 11, it only took you 11 years, uh, to, 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 <laughs> yeah. to achieve your goal, but there you did. And that must yeah. have been such an amazing, an amazing. I tell
1: you this, this was unbelievably cool. Fucking great is both yeah.
0: the, the, word, the yeah. word, the term. Um, uh, were you okay? you didn't uh, get yeah. sick or anything like that
1: of course i mean no i've been flying gliders
0: in aerobatics forever so i had no problem at all so for anyone uh interested maybe they have a similar kind of goal uh, and, and and interested in starting a podcast so how did you um i mean how did you start out getting guests when you're sort of a brand new mm-hmm. podcast you don't have any sort of past episodes to point people to or anything so like that if you recall the,
1: the- <laughs> yeah yeah the, the first episode I was the guest um because of the problem of finding some the second episode I think was with <laughs> a local weather forecasting meteorology person that I met in Stuttgart episode number 3 maybe it was the other way around was Nora's um sisters husband's father he was a professor for the kind of medical stuff we talked about. So we, we bootstrapped it basically with people we knew. And also at the time, there weren't 5 million other podcasts like that. I mean, today, it's also one of the reasons why I've slowed down a bit recently. There is lots of kind of similar podcasts. I mean, for example, Lex Friedman's podcast is, is the, the the canonical example. He's also, I guess, 5 million times bigger than we are. But um, at the time, it was... You just approached people and they didn't know much about podcasting, right? It was new. Um, you know, you gave people three hours to talk about the subject instead of three minutes where they were misquoted by you know mainstream media. And so there were many of them were actually quite happy to be able to tell their story. and we gave them a forum. Today, it's hard to find guests despite our history because there's, again, five million other um similar podcasts in YouTube formats and stuff like that. So it wasn't that complicated, I guess. And of course, we built right. We didn't start with the F thirty five test pilot.
0: Um, and, uh, I'm at, was it, and I'm actually curious, just you know, doing pod, having done podcasts since 2011 yeah. myself. Um, did you? I mean, nowadays again, like you know, one of the reasons one of the reasons there's such a profusion of podcasts is everyone's got Zoom now. Um, Zoom works great. You hit the record button, blah blah. Uh, back in the day, we used Skype. Um, what what? Mm-hmm. What did you use at the time?
1: Same here. I used Skype. I used, actually, when I started, I bought a, ah, forget the name now. It is a, basically a, a, a little black box that you plug between your analog phone line. So you could record actual phone because not everybody had computers at the time. Now everybody has, right? So you don't need anything else except the usual five different IP based voice things. Right. At the time I actually recorded the phone physically. Um, and also we always did a lot of stuff uh, like in person because again, my, my main motivation was to go places, go to people, visit stuff, do stuff, right? Enjoy, experience um, things and do the podcast only as an excuse for getting in the door.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that. that's actually, that's really interesting for again, for any sort of budding podcasters. Um, uh, one of the most important things to pick is something that you actually care about. Yes, that you actually want to do. Um, uh, and I mean, I mean, depending on what you're up to, right, but you, you could be, there's a great podcast out there called shameless acquisition target by someone who created a podcast with the intention of getting it acquired. Um, there's people like that. Um, but if you're not like that, um, one of the, one of the keys to success is to actually do something, do a podcast about something you actually care about because you, in a sense, you can't fail. Um, if, if, if if no, if no one listens, but you got to talk to so-and-so uh, you, you, you win. Um, and, yeah. and that's, that's one of the, one of the great things about it. And, and also too, like, uh, as, as you were saying, I mean, you know, it, again, it's, it's a bit different today because there's, you know, it's a popular format now that people are familiar yeah. with, but at the time, the idea of someone sort of, as they would say in Australia, just rocking up and asking you, Hey, can I talk to you, asking you good questions for hours about something you care, you, you know, about <laughs> You know, surprise, surprise, people are like, absolutely, I want to do that. Yeah, <laughs> um, definitely. Exactly. Um, yeah, and, and you know, I can't wait. Um, uh, so just moving on to the next part of the interview where we talk about your book, um, your your yep. latest book, um, which is How to Understand Almost Anything, A Practitioner's Guide to Domain Analysis. Um, it's got a really great title, and it's got a really great cover. We can maybe talk about that that detail in the last part of the interview. Um, uh but I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, what the book is about and who it's for. Yes. Yeah, so
1: imagine you're a company that builds software for tax advisors, where people, tax advisors, can enter you know, their clients' financial stuff, right? And then the program spits out how much tax they have to pay in the five million different tax categories. That company has the challenge of essentially implementing all of the German tax code as executable software, as part of this product they're selling. Right? So they have lots and lots and lots of people at the company who understand tax law, and then somehow through some mechanism have to get it into software. Right? I could tell an exactly similar story for, for example, I don't know, um, medical uh, drug trials. These trials are highly regulated. You have to be very precise about how you run them, when you give which drug, when you then measure the fever, you know, which questions you ask, how people feel. So you have to formally specify how one of these trials work. So you have experts, same story, right? You have experts who know how to design these trials. They get high level medical requirements and then they could program such a trial algorithm, right? Lots of other examples like that. So whenever you have software where the software isn't about software, it's actually about something else. You have to get the something else into the software, right? And the point is that the people who know about the something else at your company usually are software engineers. They are something else experts, subject matter experts as we call them. So the traditional way is um, to get this stuff into the software They basically write documents. You know, 20 years ago, we called them requirement documents. Then we called them user stories. Uh, Now we call them user experience, blah, something. But it's basically always text and a bunch of tables. And then you give this to developers, they misunderstand 50% of it and implement something else. And so this cycle from the brain of the subject matter expert into the software system is, is very, very leaky and tedious and error prone and all these other adjectives. So, a better way of doing this, and I'll get to domain analysis in one second. A better way of doing this is to build a language or a tool or a modeling language, to use whatever word you want, with which you can formally, in an executable way, describe tax law, drug trials, whatever it is, you build this language in a way that is uh, usable by these non-programmer domain experts, subject matter experts. And then they just quote program or model or specify tax law, drug trials with this custom language, and then you build a compiler that makes it executable. So this is basically the story for domain specific languages or model driven development or generative development or code generation or whatever you, but just thousands of different terms that all mean the same thing. So basically the question is, how do you build that language? How do you know what gets into the language? How do you describe all of the German tax law or drug trials. How how do you do that? What's the vocabulary? How do you form sentences? I mean, the usual questions in language design, in programming language design. So that's basically it. You, You want to understand how domain works because you want to abstract it into a set of consistent abstractions, which you then. Package into a modeling tool or DSL tool. Doesn't matter if it's textual or diagrams or tables or buttons. It doesn't matter. It's it's a it's a formal set of abstractions with which your non-programmer domain experts can express the stuff in their domain for an analysis and execution.
0: Yeah. Thanks very much for for that uh, really great explanation. Um, it's interesting that you bring up. Uh... And I know you use the example of sort of German tax uh, law mm-hmm. when you when you give talks and things like that. i watched a couple on on YouTube preparing mm-hmm. for the interview. And one thing I find so interesting about that, particularly the tax example, is that um, there's a set of texts out there that that um, uh, you know describe tax law. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which they're they might be they might be very rigorous e- individually. But there's also a sense in which there, the whole thing is quite arbitrary because where does it come from? It comes from yeah. a parliament kind of making up rules. Um, and so when you're then this sort of like tax service provider, you actually, you have to, it's, 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 it's actually not on the sort of government to actually sort of provide this kind of language. It's on you as the company yeah. to create this language to try and capture what what they're doing. Yes.
1: and I mean, in an ideal world, right, um,
0: it should be the government
1: who write their laws in an executable way, right? And there is actually a whole discipline of, you know, formal law, executable law. Um, You know, it's not... Nobody does it in practice. I mean, there are some relatively funny attempts by governments to, for example,
0: formally specify uh, parts of the tax law. It's, It's... Crap. that's that's super uh, interesting I was actually I was I, the thought popped into my head I, when I was doing yeah. this for the interview I was like I wonder if there actually is anyone in any government anywhere who's actually trying to do this and then I, I mean, thought sure would never get anywhere
1: <laughs> there is certainly somebody somewhere I mean sure for yeah. example the, the yeah. Dutch tax agency which which isn't the government but it's the official government body who calculates the official taxes not it's not a service provider it's the government agency they use the same approach right they use DSL's actually also based on MPS Um, but they also have the problem of basically having to reinterpret and formalize the imprecise stuff that comes from the parliament and I guess you know from the parliament's perspective I think this imprecision is a feature and not a bug right because they want to be biggest to get their buddies loophole hidden somewhere Um, but if if you if you strip away the political part and look at for example drug trials where you don't have that problem right so there's lots of domains where you should start formalizing as early as possible right to 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 never get into this problem of having to reinterpret the ambiguous prose into something more formal if it, if it, if everybody always directly used the, the the technical language, right? The formal language, then it would would be a better situation.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 really interesting. I want to um sort of you know sort of trying to sort of we'll we'll drill in maybe to some specific examples in a bit. But but talking about things at this level, there's a great uh, sort of move you pull at the beginning of your book, um, where you're talking you're you're sort of sort of you're defining terms, right? And you say, what is domain analysis? A domain is a bounded area of knowledge and expertise. Um, domain analysis is about understanding that body of knowledge, the subject matter of a domain. Um, and it's interesting, you then use, you, you use, you give three different examples of, of, so so you use this term subject matter, but there's actually subject matter can then differentiate into different types of things. Mm. Um, and so you say, for example, in a system that creates monthly salary and wage statements for employees, the subject matter comprises the rules that determine what counts as working time et cetera. Then you say in digital therapeutics applications th- that guide patients through specific medical treatment, the subject matter is, whereas before it was comprises of the rules, it is the set of data structures, algorithms, decision procedures, and correctness criteria, et cetera. Mm. And then the third example you give is um, a radio telescope and you say the subject matter is, uh, n- in this case, not the rules that determine something. Not the set of data structures, et cetera, but the set of parameters needed to perform successful observation. And I love the fact that you you very clearly set out that this sort of subject matter idea can bake can take different forms. Um and that they, they but but that they have, but they but they can actually have but they're they're internally coherent. Um and there are ways yeah. there are ways of addressing them. Uh, and, and it was might you you
1: might be giving the author of that book too much credit for <laughs> for <laughs> thinking
0: deeply here, maybe that's just how it
1: came out
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, uh, well, whether it's I mean, you know uh, it, it may it may in a sense have been accidental, but it was also kind of necessary, right? Because the three different examples that you chose actually yeah. show how this subject yes. matter idea is different in these different ways. Um yes, uh, and I mean, speaking speaking of sort of deep thinking, what i what I kept thinking about was Hegel um uh, when I was reading reading through the book. Um, the German philosopher, for those who aren't mm-hmm. um, but one, one thing that I, I mean, I just recall this from my undergraduate days, but one of the great kind of reversals that, that Hegel pulls on you is between the concepts of abstract and concrete. Mm-hmm. And he says, most people would think that like, you know, um, what you're seeing around you, like say the, the sort of structure, the, the building that you're, that you're in, that that's concrete. And he could say, what could be more abstract than the arbitrary building? you happen to find yourself in, um, uh, or, you know, or in the, in the sense of like, you know, but what he, basically what he says is what we, what we, the value that we attribute to things that we think are concrete, we actually should describe that value to things that we think are abstract because nothing could be more firm and permanent than say the rules of logic or something Mm -hmm. like that, or the laws of nature. Um, and and the sort of things that we think of as abstract are actually incredibly concrete. The particular manifestation of them, that's actually kind of abstract, right? Like the building that I'm in, the time I was born into, things like that. So anyway, but I, when I was thinking about these, you know, the, the 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 sort of very ambitious title about how to understand almost everything, how does that work? And it only. I- it works when you see things that way to some extent.
1: Yeah, I, I'm not responsible for the title. That was my uh, marketing department, as you know. Uh, when you <laughs> yeah. when you write books, right, somebody yeah. else, not the author, is coming up with the with a kind of catchy title. So mm-hmm. I, I, it's not my my fault. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did put in the almost right, so that it doesn't sound. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's a very author. It sound... It's a very author uh, move.
1: <laughs> but seriously, I mean, I was actually when I when I first talked about the book, kind of on LinkedIn and stuff. People did suggest to remove the almost, right? And I was very—I wouldn't do that because it sounds too grandiose, right? It's, I think
0: it's—it's just—I don't want to do that. So it, it's, the almost is important. Uh, yeah, no, that—that's that's super interesting to hear that. Um, I—I I, I would agree. I think it actually makes it sound um. I think it makes. I mean, personally, I and I was thinking about it. Like, I think it. it I think it makes it sound more ambitious um, to actually yeah, be yeah. almost in there, uh, adding adding some subtlety to that. Sort of isn't. It's also an, it. al- an
1: an alliteration, right? So that's also always good. So oh yeah. so, I mean, very
0: well crafted yeah. title. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> <marketing card. laughs> Um uh But anyway, yeah. So sort of sort of getting getting uh, more more into sort of like the details of why would why would someone come up with the kind of you know um, why why would someone be a language engineer? What is, what is the need for having a sort of way of understanding almost everything? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if you mentioned it in the interview already, but the, the concept of a subject matter expert, um, you know, the, this sort of SME or this specific term, yeah. um, when you're, when you've got a company and everything's everything software nowadays, um, so you're going to have the kind of like the people who let's, let's, let's carry on with the sort of tax, tax idea, right? There's mm-hmm. the tax experts and there's the programmers, um. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of what you're doing is trying to get those two groups to have the same terminology. Say the word, say the word language. Language. Right. Yeah. And have the same, have the same language so that you don't need to be a programmer to talk to the programmer about what you need. Implement if you're the tax expert and and if you're the software developer and and you're like, well, hold on a second here. I don't really understand what you're talking about. You don't need to be a tax expert to talk back. Yes. But but what you both need to know is this shared thing that you developed in your... Exactly. Yes.
1: And you're emphasizing something very important. Because when I say, let's build a way of working where the text people can deal with text shit and don't have to know anything about scalability and performance and robustness and all this programming stuff. And at the same time, the technical people don't have to understand and spend days and days and days and days implementing All this tax crap they really don't care about. Even at the tax company, the developers don't care about the tax stuff, right? It is boring, let's face it. So so when I say I want to organize things in a way where these two are kind of separate, everybody can focus on their own, um, uh, uh, you know, whatever they're interested in. I'm, I'm kind of, people say, well, you want to separate these two groups and that's not agile and, you know, today we all have to be friends and we have to collaborate. Yes, absolutely. And that's what I'm trying to do, right? Like you say, I want to build, uh, if you will, a contract between the subject matter experts and the technical people. The contract says, here is the set of things you technical people have to be able to execute. Everything I can express with this language, you have to be able to run. So please build me a compiler or an interpreter or whatever magic you can get up with. If I give you a valid sentence in the language, you run it, right? At the same time, the language built by technical people and, and, and people like me, right, language engineers, domain analysis, whatever, together with the subject matter people, of course, it says here is the exact degrees of freedom you have when describing subject matter, tax, whatever. Right? And so there is now when when the compiler doesn't work, the technical people know what they need to fix because they have to run the language. Similarly, if the tax people notice they can't express something, then the language is obviously flawed. So we have to improve the language, but at the same time, because that's the contract, now the technical people know what they have to run. So in my experience, this actually improves the collaboration between the two, if you will, flavors
0: of people and in most organizations. Right. And so for example, i um, uh, you know, <clears throat> what that would mean is that there would be various, I, I imagine there would be various kind of like, uh, typically, as I think you mentioned in the book, typically if the systems have a hierarchy to them, and so you can define, you can sort of come up with terms to define various levels of the hierarchy. And I imagine that for example, like if, if a new tax law were passed, mm. would you sort of then have a kind of like, let's say like a branch. At a certain level of the hierarchy that would happen and you'd give a term to that you you would be able to sort of one would it would it work like that or it
1: depends i mean
0: uh, if um like in this concrete case that
1: we've built right um if a new tax law would be passed i would say there's a chance 99 point something percent that the existing language can express it so you know the the the, the subject matter expert would try to understand that law would open their modeling tool, tax modeling tool, and would start trying to express it. And again, 99 point something percent, it would work. They would write tests, right? So they have that green test bubbles, you know, tax calculations correct. And they might, um, you know, run into a limitation of the language where it's extremely verbose to write it down, or it's not even possible. Like for example, there is one, uh, case, at least one case in German tax law where you actually have to perform a fixed point calculation. Like you have to you have to compute until nothing changes in order to allocate certain things. That is not something our language was able to do initially. So and you couldn't program it with the language because the language is not a general purpose programming language, right? It's optimized for text stuff. And so therefore it wasn't possible for the subject matter people to implement this requirement, if you will. So we had to enhance the language that happens, but it's rare because during domain analysis, you spend time trying to explore the whole domain and build a language that can cover it.
0: Um, and, uh, obviously this model could be applied to something like the GDPR. GDPR, you mean the, 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 the. The, I'm and strange I'm, law that I'm, I'm, the I'm making. I'm making probably too much of an insider, an insider joke. But when, when basically, like, like, let's say you're let, let's say for example, you're a Canadian, uh, uh, you know, online publishing platform. Yeah. And all of a sudden, there's 300 pages Maybe. of European regulation that you need yes. to comply with. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the,
1: the the problem is with GDPR is that it is um, so. so the, okay, let's step back. The nice thing about tax law is it's basically about making decisions and calculating i'm not familiar enough with gdpr beyond the cookie banner on my website that um that i could say whether this is a domain that is like a good fit for this kind of approach it's just it's hard hard to say
0: um I will no, have fair, to look into that. Fair enough. I imagine one of the challenges would be, like, for example, if this new thing that I've been that's been dumped on my desk and, like, you know, I'm being asked, you know, does does this, what you do apply to this? And if you're like, this is way too arbitrary, <laughs> uh, might, yeah, th- yeah, might be one of the reasons. Like, there's just there's yes. just an infinite infinite range of degrees of freedom, and so yes, you know, so you you wouldn't be I able
1: do? to find good abstractions, for example. And we we had this right. We were building a, a language for. <laughs> For all, all things, um, for how, how do you how do you efficiently run, um, pumps and other stuff in a refrigerator, to optimally cool the thing in a in an energy efficient way, right? So when you when you open the fridge door, right, obviously, uh, heat comes in, gets warmer. You close the door. Now what do you do? Do you start the pump to cool it down again, or do you think, well, maybe the guy just opened the fridge and probably put something out, they'll open the door again in 20 seconds. And so I'm not going to start the pump for 20 seconds. And so we were thinking, or actually we were prototyping, building a language for that. And it turns out these cooling algorithms are so arbitrary that you can't find abstractions. It's completely empirical, right? There's a guy in the basement in a white lab coat who does measurements all day long, every day, all year. And, And so whatever he comes up with, he codes or somebody codes up in C and you just couldn't find a So that, that does happen, but it's relatively rare.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's super interesting. I mean, it just, it's, it's interesting that sort of what you're doing is sort of in very ways, very many ways, kind of scientific, right. And you're using scientific terms like degrees of freedom and then things like that, um, to try and basically like you go out and encounter some phenomenon in the world and try and yeah. come up with a framework for understanding it. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, and, um. So there's there's really interesting things in the book. Uh, there's this very particular interesting passage near the beginning again, where you talk about the the engine, um, mm-hmm. which, is, which is super interesting. Um, and I guess without again without going into too many details, I was just wondering if you could uh, maybe talk a little bit about what what you mean when you use the word engine.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, if you if, if you describe, so if you have a language, let's say Java, right, and you write a Java program. In order to run that Java program, you have a compiler that transforms it into bytecode, and then you have a interpreter that, or man, today it's an, uh, you know just in time compiler, blah blah blah. But it's basically kind of a bytecode interpreter that that well executes the bytecode that you got as the output from your compiler, and so. Basically, if, if you, if, if you see a black box into which you put a Java program and at the other end of the black box, you get the behavior, right? It's, it's executed. You get the, you know, the, the, the semantics come out of it, whatever, you, you know, it's, it runs. So this black box is what I call the engine. And I, I, I call it so in this kind of abstract term, because I don't care if it is a compiler or an interpreter or a combination of the two, like in Java or whatever else you could come up with. It, the, the only requirement is, and the one side you, you feed programs or models expressed with your, you know, with the abstractions for your domain, with your language, right? And it, it runs it, whatever it does. I don't care. And the, the thing is, this is not a technical book, right? I wrote previous books about the technical parts and there I would discuss the trade-offs between interpreters and code generators and compilers and blah, 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 blah. In this book. it just doesn't matter the The only important thing is you have the model which is built with your nicely abstracted language that you found during domain domain analysis and you run full stop make it work technical problem we don't care
0: yeah and it's 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 I think if if I understand it correctly what what's what's sort of going on here is that it's not it's not sort of like saying I don't care because it doesn't matter um what what it's saying is like it's providing this sort of concept that people on either side of that engine yeah can share so that they can do yeah, that and that they need. I to mean, do. it, it, in practice, of
1: course, it doesn't matter. You have to build this thing, yeah. but in this book, I mm-hmm. treat it as
0: something that is mm-hmm. quote, just work, mm-hmm. but somebody has mm-hmm. to build it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it, but again, but again, like, you know, the crucial, but like, you know, ideal in an ideal world, if you're on one side of that engine, the output side, you can talk to the people on the input side and neither of you would necessarily need to understand what's going on in the engine. Is that, is that right?
1: Well, I mean, you have to.
0: So the the people who
1: build the engine, which is programmers, right? They have to understand what the language means. If you have a language with twenty five keywords and you can compose them in whatever ways, then I mean, you have to write code that you know understands meaning, runs, right? Any program expressed in that language. So that the programmers have to understand the intricate the. In- the details of the engine, the people who create the models don't have to understand the details of the engine, but they also have to know what the language means, right? You cannot use a language if you don't know what it means when you write down a, a particular sentence. But you don't understand that by you know digging through the Java code that implements the engine. What you do is you write tests or you have uh, other debuggers, sim- simulators. You know, ideas from live programming. You write a bit of model in your language, and you see something do stuff, right? And you can directly, ah, oh, yeah, this is how, that makes sense, right? So in the in the tax case, we have um, you know ways of testing your calculations. You can basically put in the data of a kind of tax subject, and you see what the outcome is, and then the tax guy can see if the model they created is correct. In the uh, drug trial thing, we can simulate whole executions of. Of these trials, and you can see which uh, drug uh, or which which I don't know questionnaire or, or uh, you know exam examination or patient visit happens on which day and what the outcome is. You get nice charts and stuff. So yeah, you know, so that's how that would
0: work. Okay, that makes a lot more sense to me now. Thanks, thanks very much for clarifying that. Um, yep. The uh, you mentioned your other books, which gives me uh, a great opportunity to segue into the third part of the interview, where we talk about your yeah. experience as a writer and content creator and things like that. So. Um, were you always interested in in writing, uh, or was your first book kind of, you know, was it something that you approached a publisher about, or did someone pull it out of you, if you could? Um,
1: I I used uh, the trusted approach of uh, relationship first, <laughs> so <laughs> right. um, the first book I wrote uh, is called Server Component Patterns, and it was basically patterns about this, um, you know, enterprise Java beans, corporate components, component-based middleware. And, um, at the time I was, um, visiting the Europlop PLOP conference every year. PLOP stands for Pattern Languages of Programming. So it's a patterns conference. And so I, I stumbled into that one. I forget why. And so I visited there every year and wrote pattern papers, um, for the conference. And then at some point, uh, one of the gurus there, uh, Frank Buschmann, um, who at the time was editing a series at Wiley, a book series on different patterns. He basically asked me and 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 three buddies of mine whether we weren't interested um, in in writing a book, and so somehow that somehow happened, and that was that was the first book. And um, since I've written a couple of them, it must be to some degree enjoyable, maybe. It doesn't feel like it necessarily all the time, but there must be something. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it repeatedly. For me as a freelancer, it's, of course, also a marketing tool, right? It's, it's yeah. I'm not, I don't have a career. I can't, can't point to a title. So I have to do various other ways of, you know, advertising my skills. And so it's the usual stuff, right? It's conference talks and it's books.
0: Um, And I, if I recall correctly, you you invite feedback on your book as well. Yeah, that there you go. Right, right in the introduction there. Is that something yeah. that you've always done? Um, not as explicitly, maybe. I mean, I mean, I, I, I mean, I would suspect that every writer would say,
1: "If you have a, you know, please tell me what you think about our book, and if you have enhancements or suggestions, please tell me." So, I mean, I guess it's probably in the in the prefaces of probably most books <laughs> of my most books, but in this case, in this book's case, I'm particularly serious about it because this book is not a technical book, right? You can there's no objective right or wrong. You can disagree with almost all of what I'm saying. And people might have different experiences and therefore come to different conclusions about how to run a domain analysis and how you don't do it. So that's why I'm really seriously interested in feedback and not just at pointing out actual mistakes. Yeah, and for
0: any for anyone listening, uh the the uh hit uh Marcus's email address is right there in the introduction. He he's yeah. very yeah. serious about it. Um yeah. uh, I would say it's it's interesting with respect to you know, and like sort of getting into the weeds of the publishing world and writing world and things like that. um uh, the the idea of of feedback and uh, is, you know, sort of changes in when you're mm. sort of self-publishing, right? because uh, the, yeah. the the text is entirely under your control. And so, for example, um, uh, and you could actually change and update you know, chapters that yeah. you've already published as opposed to, you know, responding by publishing a new chapter on something that you otherwise wouldn't have written about if it weren't for the feedback or something like that. And that's been just one of the sort of interesting things about our sort of journey at Lean Pub, right? Is because, yeah. you know, the, the idea of changing, changing something that you've already written in response to feedback from mm-hmm. someone was a sort of alien, alien concept. Um, you could, you could maybe make a new edition or something like that, but, but the, yeah. the, the very text out there and changing that was something relatively new. And I would say that, um. In the past, uh, a lot of authors were, were tr- you know, sort of trepidatious about putting their email address out there, about inviting feedback and things like that. Um, uh, and I, I confess, I sort of never really understood where that came from. Um, you know, uh, why why you why you wouldn't want to be contacted? I mean, you know, if you read about authors in the past, you know, they would they would get bucket loads of mail and they would reply to them by hand. You know, things like that. You know, like th- this. You know. I- First of all, my email address is out there anyway, my website. And
1: second, um, I'm not expecting to sell a million copies, right? And then be swamped by lots of email. So this is a niche topic. Um, I'm not going to give any estimates of how many copies I'll sell, but let me put it this way. I suspect that even if every reader would send me an email, I would be able to cope with that.
0: Well let's hope you get that problem um <laughs> 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 uh, but but it is but it is it is it is it is I mean in our experience you know yeah most most like authors like re- readers love to contact authors they love yeah. to hear back from them they like to get in conversations. one thing they absolutely love is if they can help improve the book mm. um you know even if it's a typo you know or something yeah. like that. You know they they you know the 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 sort of thrill of sort of contacting an author and saying hey there's a typo on page five and they're like oh thanks let me change it and update it um, you yeah. know it, it's it's just it's just really great to see that to see that happen uh, but of course yeah. there's the higher level kind of feedback that you're talking about as well that's also yes. really important. Um, yeah. uh, I mentioned yeah uh, you've got a great cover um, and I know you you work with you work with various people you've had the same I think sort of copy editor for years that you mentioned at the beginning yes. of your book. Um, so how did you get your your great cover? Uh, um I I don't know I played around and Oh you made it yourself.
1: Yeah yeah yeah. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. So yeah I I I think I I played with uh, Adobe Express. It's this kind of online social media style quickly draw something that looks kind of fancy and has nice fonts kind of
0: thing. Okay. okay, and I think that's where I stumbled over something like this. Um, yeah, yeah. No, thanks very much for mentioning the very specific tool. Uh, you know, that's we say we save these kinds of conversations for the end of the of the podcast. I and mean, as I mentioned before, we started recording. There are some yeah. people who skip to the end because they're like, "Wow, look, yeah. I, learning about a new tool like that can actually like now I'm now now I'm going to have a great book cover myself or something like that, which can be. Yeah. Really good. I guess
1: it was um if i if i had to redesign it today i would probably be uh go to midjourney and 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 you know have it come up with something fancy some ai kind of automatically generated thing oh, but right. when i did this yeah yeah, yeah. when, when yeah. i did this thing it this this midjourney stuff wasn't yet public so i had to use the non artificial brain to yeah but it, I don't, yeah I
0: into no it. automatic i mean the the um ai generated uh book covers is a is a reality going forward now um and yeah. uh, it's going to improve a lot of book covers frankly
1: <laughs> Yes, um... some <laughs> probably <laughs>
0: um uh um the last question um i always like to ask on the podcast if the guest has published a book on leanpub is um if there was anything about LeanPub that when you were using it that had you sort of shaking your fist at the screen and yelling at you, damn you, LeanPub? Or if there was any magical feature we... So if there's any sort of terrible thing we could fix for you or if there was any magical feature we could build for you, can you think of anything you would ask us to do?
1: Actually, I haven't used a lot of the features yet. It's my first book on LeanPub and I haven't used a lot of options, so I haven't shaken my fist. What I actually found funny... I, I what I, Actually, so I, I'm not saying that because... Uh, you. Just, you know, disclaimer. You didn't ask me to say that. But I, I actually really did, slash, do like the experience on LeanPub. And, you know, one thing where I noticed this and which where I specifically had exactly that thought that I like it was when, um, so I had had the book online for a while and people could, uh, um, uh, say how much they would want to pay, um, as part of the, you know, interest registration, whatever. And, um, When I then uh, went to the price setting tab, um, LeanPub basically said, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, said what they were going to pay, and here is the average value, and here is the mean value. And we would suggest you use the mean because, and then there's a paragraph of explanation why mean is better than average. And um, you could, of course, also use any other number, any other price, but, you know, experience tells. And I found this really useful, right? This wasn't some. Ununderstandable, either statistics or marketing gibberish right it was actually the exact the right level of abstraction and nerdiness that helped me decide on the price and i actually did use the price you guys suggested so so i found this really nice so i thought ah that there's people there who, who are actually thinking about the author and 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 the actual problems you have so what is a good price right so anyway i've I found this a nice experience.
0: Thanks very much for sharing that. That's really that's really good feedback. My colleague Peter will uh, appreciate it when I tell him about that that you like that cuz he he wrote that. Yeah. Um the for anyone listening who's who's um sort of curious about what Marcus was talking about. So when you when you create a book on Leanpub, even before you hit the publish button, you get a landing page that gives people an opportunity to to sort of sign up to be notified when it's published. Um they don't have to and by the way you don't have they don't actually have to share their email address with the author or anything like mm-hmm. that. It can be can be blind. Um, uh, but they can all, what they can do is they can say how much they pay for the book, um, which, which then gives you like really great feedback actually as an author about, about p- potential pricing and things like that. But as an author, when you're on the, on the sort of in the author app, as we call it sort of side of lean pub, yeah, we have this sort of long, we, we, this sort of lean pub goes in for these, what we call the wall of text, um, <laughs> yeah, but. But we like to sorry we like to we like to explain things at length and and there is there there are some people who are like oh my god wall of text that's not book authors <laughs> yeah <true>. <laughs> <laughs> they, they typically like to read um, and so we you know we sort of at least that's our theory and so we take advantage of that and so we actually have the opportunity to explain things at some length and as you're saying pricing is really hard uh, it's really hard to know what the right thing is and then you come to Leanpub and it's like I set two prices. <laughs> a minimum price and a suggested price, and then people get to choose what to pay. That's actually like so and so actually like actually explaining, okay, here's how this works. Here's a one framework for making a decision about about pricing and things like that, um, is really important, particularly for people who um wanna get things right, if you know what I mean. There's a lot of mm-hmm. there's a sort of seat of the pants kind of person who's like, whatever, nine ninety nine. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's it, I'm never going to figure it out there's no there's no system but there are other people like yeah you know there might actually be something to figure out here and so we do like to provide that that level of analysis to some extent where yeah. we can uh, yeah. well Marcus um, thank you very much for taking some time out of your uh, evening uh, to, uh, to talk to me and to talk to all of us and thank you very much for using LeanPub as uh, one of the platforms for publishing your book we really appreciate it thanks for the opportunity here and for building LeanPub I guess <laughs> thanks